Hey everyone, it's Tuesday, August 2nd. I'm Moshe Wanunu and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. So while on most mornings I try to deliver a variety of headlines, usually a dozen plus stories from around the world, today I'm going to just focus on two stories, two huge international stories that have huge implications. First, we learned last night that the U.S. took out al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. He was the key strategist behind 9-11 and has been on the run for 21 years. I'm going to break down what his death means and what comes next. The other major story we're watching with huge implications is Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. The next 48 hours are going to be very interesting to watch. It comes at a time where China is threatening potential military action during the speaker's trip for an island they consider their territory. I'll have much more on why this is such a big deal and what this visit means. But I want to start with a remarkable headline out of Afghanistan on Monday, that one of the masterminds of the worst terrorist attack on American soil was taken out by a drone strike in central Kabul over the weekend. President Biden addressed the nation on Monday night from the White House to make the big announcement. Justice has been delivered, and this terrorist leader is no more. People around the world no longer needed to fear the vicious and determined killer. The United States continues to demonstrate our resolve and our capacity to defend the American people against those who seek to do us harm. Zawahiri has been leading al-Qaeda for the past decade since the U.S. took out bin Laden in that raid in Pakistan back in 2011. Zawahiri has continued to call for attacks on the U.S. and the West, including most recently just a few weeks ago. Incredibly, Zawahiri was living in central Kabul, nearby the presidential palace and the defense ministry, which means the Taliban, which has close ties to al-Qaeda, knew he was there. Remember, it's only been a year since the U.S. left Afghanistan last August and the Taliban took over the country. The group has very firm control over Kabul. So this is what we know so far. U.S. intelligence officials apparently tracked Zawahiri into Kabul earlier this year and knew enough to build a model of the safe house he was staying in, they would use this model to brief Biden in the Situation Room over the course of the past few months. The goal was to take Zawahiri out without any civilian casualties, so they had to wait for the right moment. And it appears they accomplished that mission in the early morning hours Sunday when a U.S. drone fired two Hellfire missiles at Zawahiri as he stepped out alone onto a balcony of that safe house. So this happened just after 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Saturday night, early morning Sunday morning, as Zawahiri was taking basically a little walk out to his balcony. He apparently had been living in the safe house with several family members. U.S. intelligence has concluded, though, that the 71-year-old terrorist was the only person killed in the strike. They hit him on the balcony all by himself. That's according to the Washington Post. But let's back up here. These were some of the biggest questions I got last night on Instagram. One, who was he? Two, what does this strike mean? And three, does this make us safer? Zawahiri was born in Egypt back in the early 1950s and was actually educated as a surgeon, though he first got involved in extremist movements and a group called Islamic Jihad in the 1970s. Just a few years later, he would participate in the 1981 assassination of the Egyptian president Anwar Sadat. Sadat, you might know, upset Islamic extremists when he made peace with Israel just a couple years earlier. And so this is where we would first hear the name Zawahiri while he was serving prison time in Egypt as part of the assassination plot. He would be released a few years later and would make his way over to Afghanistan, as many jihadis did in the mid-1980s, to join the Mujahideen, the group that was fighting the Soviet Union, uh, the Russian invaders in Afghanistan. And it is here in Afghanistan in the 1980s where he first became acquainted with Osama bin Laden, who at the time was a wealthy Saudi who had joined the Afghan resistance. 
Reportedly, Zawahiri, remember he's a doctor, treated bin Laden in the caves amid Russian bombing there in the 1980s. Years later, in the mid-90s, Zawahiri and bin Laden would reconnect and merge their terror groups to form al-Qaeda. And according to terrorism experts, the duo each brought something to the group. Bin Laden had the money and the stature, while Zawahiri had the tactics and organizational skills. And in fact, Zawahiri was one of the key influences to get bin Laden to look west and begin to target the U.S. Remember, there was a time al-Qaeda in the early 90s and mid-90s even was just focused on Arab leaders. And Zawahiri was one of the key folks within al-Qaeda who was telling bin Laden, we got to target the west. And so Zawahiri would play a key role in organizing the 1998 attacks on the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Those attacks killed more than 200 and injured thousands. The next strike would come a couple years later against the USS Cole, an American naval ship. That attack kills 17. And then comes the 9-11 attacks, which kills nearly 3,000 Americans. It actually turns out that Zawahiri's satellite phone was hacked by U.S. intelligence, and his conversations that were heard by U.S. intel helped confirm al-Qaeda was behind 9-11. And so the war on terror would begin. Zawahiri and bin Laden and most al-Qaeda leaders who were not killed in that war on terror went on the run. They would try to keep up their attacks, keep up the organization as they faced uh, the assault by the American military and NATO forces in Afghanistan. The leaders would end up separating for their own security and their own safety. It would take the U.S. 10 years to find bin Laden. Remember, he was taken out in a special operations mission in May 2011 in Pakistan. Zawahiri took over the group upon bin Laden's death, and in recent years, U.S. airstrikes killed a succession of his deputies, weakening his ability to coordinate globally. Zawahiri would try to keep al-Qaeda together, and it became really difficult for him because ISIS, a competing terror group that was on the rise, was attracting all the young militants to its caliphate initially in Iraq and Syria. Remember, ISIS had taken a whole bunch of territory there, and so all uh, inspired jihadis were going to that group, making it difficult for al-Qaeda to continue to compete. ISIS also had a different philosophy than al-Qaeda. They weren't thinking about things in terms of training camps and uh, training for big operations. They were just trying to inspire, you know, even lone wolves, single actors abroad to uh, fight the war on terror one by one. They would do this by just releasing videos and inspiring uh, a whole bunch of jihadis online. And so we didn't hear much from Zawahiri in recent years. He would release a video here and there to prove that he was out there and that al-Qaeda was still around. And ultimately, as we now know, he made his way into Kabul to be taken out by U.S. drone strike this past weekend. So as far as what's next, this is what we know. There is no heir apparent for Zawahiri. The U.S. has been extremely successful in taking out uh, almost all of al-Qaeda leadership through the years. And it has been noted now with his death this weekend, bin Laden's gone. Uh, effectively now, every major actor and organizer of the 9-11 attack is either dead or behind bars. Another pretty interesting observation here is that the Taliban is pretty arrogant in thinking they could keep Zawahiri in central Kabul without the U.S. knowing. You know, and they got a reminder now that the U.S., despite last year's withdrawal, as crazy as it was, as chaotic as it was, that the CIA continues to keep an eye on what is happening in Afghanistan and is willing to act when necessary. When you talk now to U.S. intel and military officials, one of their major priorities is not letting anything like al-Qaeda pre-9-11 with camps, etc. rise up, nor anything like ISIS from 10 years ago rise up to be able to conduct a massive coordinated strike. In a matter of just three weeks, the U.S. has now used drones to take out the leader of al-Qaeda over in Afghanistan and the leader of ISIS, the newest leader of ISIS, in Syria. 
But this is the challenge in the years ahead. The issue is now that you have small regional groups, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, they have offshoots. They have effectively franchisees in uh, North Africa, uh, Central Africa, uh, East Africa, across the Middle East, and South Asia. Now, while they're not capable of conducting the types of strikes that Al-Qaeda did 20 years ago, they still can hurt Westerners and Western targets. And the larger issue is that the philosophy, the Islamic jihadi philosophy, uh, is out there. It's out there in videos, it's out there in audio, it's out there on the internet, and it can inspire any single individual, uh, what's known as a lone wolf attacker, to conduct attacks and claim they're doing it on behalf of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. We've seen this over the course of the past 10 years, everywhere from Belgium to Paris to Turkey to California. We're going to continue to learn more about the strike and what the state of play is when it comes to the global war on terror. I'm going to try to bring you interviews on that, and I'll bring you new details as I learn them. But the bottom line is that this is a historic event in the U.S. war on terrorism. It took 21 years to take out Zawahiri. It took 10 years to take out bin Laden. And the war on terrorism now enters its third decade. Okay, now to the other major story we're following. Advisors to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi confirmed that she is in fact planning to visit Taiwan in the next 48 hours. The trip will include a meeting with the country's president, and that comes despite some pretty major warnings by the Chinese that they're, they're not happy about this. They've indicated they may make some military moves if Nancy Pelosi steps foot on the island. So the backstory here is that Pelosi is currently leading a congressional delegation. This is something that Congress often does. Uh, members of Congress, senators, they'll often travel the world to meet with leaders. Remember, the legislative branch does have a key role in foreign policy, and so they want to learn up on these things. So she's on this congressional delegation. Shorthand for it is a CODEL to several Asian countries. And until now, the Taiwan trip had only been rumored. If she sets foot in Taiwan, and keep in mind, anything can still happen. We got to monitor the headlines hour by hour. I'm recording this late on Monday night. She will be the most senior U.S. lawmaker to visit Taiwan since House Speaker Newt Gingrich traveled to the country 25 years ago. But times have changed a lot since the 90s. And most importantly, China feels and knows it is much more powerful than it was back then and is not willing to accept anything that it feels makes it look weak. The U.S. does provide Taiwan with military aid, and many U.S. senators, both Republicans and Democrats, have recently visited Taiwan without much protest. But the visit from Pelosi is different for Beijing. She's a longtime critic of China. She's you know, been a huge critic of uh, Tiananmen Square and what they did back in the late 80s, uh, has been very critical on human rights concerns. And China sees her as much more powerful than anybody else who's visited recently. The way they see it, and there are some concern among U.S. reps that they don't quite understand U.S. government, but they see that she's officially second in line for the presidency behind the vice president. And as a Democrat, they believe that her visit means something more. Now, the White House has reiterated to the Chinese that this is not a big deal and nothing has changed. And Nancy Pelosi is from a separate branch of government. But let's back up here for a second, because I'm getting a lot of questions about why this is a big deal and a lot of confusion as to what U.S. relations with Taiwan really are. Taiwan is an island of just over 20 million people that's about 100 miles from China. Their government actually came to the island in 1949. This was amid the Chinese Civil War. The communists effectively took over Beijing, and so the Democrats fled to Taiwan. And so over the course of the past 70 years, Taiwan has become a flourishing democracy. However, the Chinese government in Beijing views Taiwan as a breakaway province that they vow to retake by force if necessary at some point. As of 1949, it was all one country, and they have this burning desire to bring Taiwan back into the fold officially. But for the past 70 years, 
Taiwan has sort of remained pseudo-independent. I'll try to explain what that means. The U.S. follows what's called One China Doctrine. This was a demand from Beijing in the 1970s when the U.S. opened relations with China. It was a big deal. Nixon went to China. They opened relations. They finally came to sort of a compromise on how the West would have a relationship with China, but sort of kind of acknowledge their policy in Taiwan, but allow Taiwan to sort of continue to do its own thing. So the policy is called One China. And in that policy, the U.S. acknowledges China's position that there's only one legitimate Chinese government based in Beijing and that Taiwan is a part of China. However, the U.S. has never officially recognized China's territorial claim to the islands or commented on what would happen if Taiwan is attacked. So there's one Chinese government, Taiwan is a part of China, but we don't recognize China's claim to the actual territory of Taiwan. And this is sort of the compromise, part of the compromise they hammered out there late in the late 70s. So under that policy, the U.S. does not have official diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but keeps these unofficial relations, as seen by this trip by Pelosi, and supplies Taiwan with military gear. It's one of these unique foreign policies that seem bizarre, but have been effective for a number of years. And so Taiwan is effectively independent, but without being in the UN, without being in any international organizations, and with only about a dozen countries recognizing it as an independent country. And so it allows the U.S. to keep this relationship with the uh, huge Chinese economy uh, and China with one of the largest militaries in the world and keep this relationship going, while the U.S. sort of keeps this unofficial relationship going with Taiwan, a democracy, and continues to supply them with weapons and keeps this policy that the U.S. is going to be there for Taiwan without exactly saying what being there might mean should the Chinese invade. I hope that sort of clarifies things. One of the reasons for Pelosi's visit and one of the reasons that the Taiwanese have been so concerned is that tensions in the strait, this is the uh, sea between uh, Taiwan and China, uh, have spiked in recent years. China's been doing a lot of military exercises, and it's really started to make the Taiwanese nervous that they might have something uh, planned. And so that brings us to today. As of Monday, uh, China has been stepping up its threats. On Friday, uh, the Chinese leader called Biden to make clear that he wasn't happy about this trip. Biden sort of danced about it uh, diplomatically. We also saw on Monday this propaganda video put out by the Chinese uh, People's Liberation Army that it will not sit back. Um, and so you see this threatening language, this threatening propaganda around and in the lead up to this trip. On our end, sources from the White House have been saying they were trying to convince Pelosi not to make this trip, but will now protect her should she make this trip. The U.S. military says uh, they're ready to uh, defend her should the Chinese attempt to shoot down any U.S. Air Force aircraft carrying Pelosi on her way into or out of the island. The bottom line here, and this is what you need to know, is one. Despite politics back home, uh, most Republicans and Democrats are standing behind Pelosi's visit saying she cannot back down to these Chinese threats. And it comes as there have been more than 20 visits in the last few years by senior U.S. officials to Taiwan. Two. The visit comes at a time the Taiwanese are very nervous and looking for reassurance, especially in light of what happened in Ukraine. They don't want the Chinese to have looked at what Russia did to Ukraine and say, oh, we might be able to do that to Taiwan. And it comes in the last few years, starting with the Trump administration and now with Biden, that more and more military equipment is being sold to Taiwan. And three, while the White House warned Pelosi and was not so happy with this whole visit, uh, and it comes at a very precarious time uh, for U.S.-China relations, they are going to back her up and look to defend her if and when, and it's looking more like a when than an if, she visits the island. It's going to be something we need to monitor over the course of the next 48 hours, and I'm going to try to bring you the latest, both on this podcast, as well as on my Instagram account, at Moshe, at M-O-S-H-E-H. 
I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Now Daily podcast. I tried to do something different here where we really tried to dig deep on two issues. I'd love to hear how you feel about it. Uh, any feedback on today's edition, previous editions, and other topics you'd like us to cover, email us, podcast at mo.news. Remember also to subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. And uh, as I just mentioned, follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. Don't forget to follow us or subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you're listening to us on and review us in the store. Every single one of you matters. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.